Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And you know what I'm going to say next, don't you? As ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. So this is what we're going to be doing, if it's okay, with all of you. I'm going to make a few reflections in a minute on two things. One, the latest in Boris Johnson's uh, capacity for misjudgment. Judgment is another key issue relating to Boris Johnson. There's a lot at the moment on moral compass and lack of it and all the rest of it. Judgment. I'll reflect briefly on that, but um, I want to return, if it's okay with all of you, to the centre ground uh, because I've got so many brilliant emails on that theme and I've had some more reflections myself on that theme. So we're going to have a bit of a sequel. And then I promise you that there will be no more reflections on the centre ground for a long, long time. Maybe until the electoral reform special. I got more emails uh, on this centre ground theme, probably than on any other topic. So, and a whole range of different views as well. So there's going to be a bit more on that couple of notices just very quickly those of you on patreon sorry i know we're in july and a new month this week it's my firm pledge uh that you will get your next bonus podcast which is going to explore the relationship between harold wilson and marcia williams part of our short series on the relationship between prime ministers and their chosen favored one in number 10 the most illuminating and revealing of relationships because the Prime Minister chose this special advisor. The Cabinet, they're more constrained, but they pluck people out who they want. And you'll find there already uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, uh, who he did pluck out and want. He doesn't now. And this week, you'll get the Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, which is just so weird and edgy and enigmatic and significant and lively and dark that will be for you Uh, please do subscribe on patreon there will be a link to it on the blurb to the podcast and it's great that those of you who have who subscribe to the one where you get the mug you're getting that mug cup of consequences really exciting and of course the edinburgh festival is getting ever closer uh, and yeah tickets are on sale for the live rock and roll politics shows at the edinburgh festival beginning on monday august the 15th so hope to see as many of you as possible for those shows some of them all of them one of them that's it for notices on we go center ground coming out part two any second but what's interesting i think all the time about the eruptions of apparent scandal uh, in and around the current government. The most interesting issue is this one of judgment. Now, we all know here, because we've kind of talked about it for a long time, the issue about Brexit and his chosen form of Brexit was one of judgment. Um, I think he made a series of largely unscrutinized misjudgments in his negotiation with the EU, in the time he chose to complete the negotiation. Remember, it was all rushed through. 
Uh, the EU offered more time. No, no, no. We're in the driving seat. Let's get it done in this time so it's not done at all. The hardest possible Brexit. The lies about um, there being no checks at the border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Judgment. Judgments in making the lies. Judgments in making the policy. And when he got back from his global tour to hear that the bizarrely named Chris Pincher had um, got up to various alleged groping sessions at the Carlton Club. His misjudgment was instinctive in um, not uh, suspending him from the parliamentary party. And you would have thought there would have been a kind of series of countervailing calculations in Boris Johnson's mind. When he heard about this, he might have thought, well, we're already in deep trouble. I'm kind of plagued by issues to do with moral purpose, trust, and so on. When I'm facing this on those grounds alone, uh, we need to act quickly. But no, uh, he acted slowly because apparently... Old Pincher is a supporter of his and ultra-loyal to him. There are echoes in his response to that of Owen Patterson. Do you remember his whole sleazy sequence of recent times, anyway, began when he read a column from Charles Moore slagging off uh, the various sort of standards, regulators and regulation, uh, which Charles Moore argued targeted Brexiteers like Owen Patterson. He didn't actually read the independent report about what Owen Patterson had done, but vowed to change the rules and the composition of committees that scrutinise standards following the Moore article. And that, in a way, when he tried to impose a three-line whip to get changes through, did so, and then immediately U-turned when it became clear the whole thing was unsustainable, began the whole kind of sequence which continue with Partygate and all the other things. I've always found it reading his columns. Uh, I know they were done largely for entertainment, but when he was seeking to frame an argument, quite often, wherever you stood on the political spectrum, kind of just misjudged. And I know they were hugely popular, best paid columnists, etc. But judgment. I even feel, and I know this is a minority view, on Ukraine, his judgment is wrong. His kind of macho, hawkish talk um, in the intoxicated environment of international meetings uh, last week. You know, he basically said Ukraine cannot cede a centimetre of territory to Russia. Russia must be defeated and all the rest of it. And then old trust, Liz Trust, to compete with him. And by the way, her Thatcher impersonation is burdening her to the point where she sounds weak uh, because when you try and be who you are not, you struggle. She then said, yeah, Taiwan, if China moves in Taiwan, we're going to act and all the rest of it. Uh, this is getting really dangerous. For those new listeners who want my kind of wider thoughts on this, I did one recently about Ukraine uh, a few weeks ago. And seeing the parallels with, I'm not arguing for one minute, this similar conflagration is inevitable. But look what happened when World War I almost accidentally started because countries, leaders had made commitments in a slightly different context which propelled them towards global war, even though they were unsure really what they were fighting for. 
And, uh, you know, A.J.P. Taylor, the historian, has a sort of thesis that the war started because of railway timetables and so on. This is getting more and more dangerous. And, and Boris Johnson kind of hailed for his approach to Ukraine is, I think, uh, becoming more and more uh, hawkish. It's becoming comical that whenever he's in trouble, he phones up Zelensky and number 10 briefs the prime minister, you know. So that side of it is darkly comical. But it was very interesting when he was asked whether there was anything he would resign over, anything. Uh, of course, and it just shows his mindset. He's not going to go voluntarily. He said, well, 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 if I couldn't carry on with my Ukraine policy, well, cool. Uh, he chose Ukraine as the test, which would bring about his resignation, knowing that at the moment his Ukraine pro policy is the subject of almost universal praise in the Conservative Party. And the Labour Party, too, is wholly supportive and certainly not critical. And so that's the one he would go over. Uh, but I think, interestingly, foreign policy often hailed as brave and courageous and principled um, when it's actually calculating and shallow, often rebounds on a leader. Uh, there was a bit of that with Tony Blair and Iraq. Uh, and, you know, I, I can see people beginning to question a bit more, what does it mean that Ukraine must win? What does it mean that Putin must lose precisely? And how do we get to that end? What is the end game? Again, I think this is all about judgment, reading the rhythms, understanding people. Boris Johnson isn't that interested in people, as I've discussed before. He's interested in mythological figures. Churchill as myth. Who else? You know, those Greek legends he reveres. Shakespeare. But old uh, Pincher, he would have given little thought to and asked questions about. And then there are the famous consequences. Anyway, that's obviously going to be a big story this week. In the meantime... I'm going to return, if it's okay with you, to this debate about the centre ground. Now, I was thinking about uh, where I stood on the centre ground a bit more, and I watched the Blair centrist gathering, which took place last Thursday, and I'll say a brief word about it in a minute. But I was thinking a better phrase, a better pitch, certainly I was mentioning last week, one of those who's lapsed into using the centre ground, along with Michael Gove, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, George Osborne, Rishi Sunak, etc, etc, was Keir Starmer. I think a better way of pitching it at this time of seismic change and insecurity and great things erupting around us from a pandemic, which incidentally seems to be far from over, and many other things, the financial crash, Brexit, and all the rest of it, to just say, oh, here we are, not Jeremy Corbyn anymore, we're on the centre ground, pro-NATO, pro-security, pro-respect, pro-prosperity. It's not enough, and I think the pitch has to be, uh, if you are Labour in opposition, uh, our ambition is to forge a new consensus around a set of policies to address the challenges and opportunities for the UK now, uh, for the future, own the future. Forging a new consensus implies that you have ideas and policies that arise from the ideas which people can coalesce 
you don't just say, oh, here's the centre ground, we're sitting on it. Um, it's too passive apart from anything else. So that's one kind of generalised thought. I thought Will Hutton, uh, the journalist, put it very well in an Observer column on Sunday, where he was talking mainly about Brexit and the sort of tame response to the catastrophe of Brexit. Um, but he was talking more widely as well. And uh, Will wrote this, uh, radical centrism is not to identify what the centre-right think and then to do it more nicely and more moderately, as the swarm of pollsters around Tony Blair and the leader of the opposition's office seem to think. It's doing the right thing well and with conviction, around which the centre will coalesce. Now, I think that puts it brilliantly. In other words, yes, you can pitch for the centre, but you go about defining it with a radical sense of conviction, not, oh my God, the focus groups block this, the focus groups block that, the pollsters block that. And so forging a new consensus to meet the challenges and opportunities of Britain now and in the future, and then frame your kind of arguments around that rather than, say, this kind of passivity of the centre. I thought the Blair conference, I'll tell you what it reminded me of, weirdly, because it's on a different part of the political spectrum. In the early, <clears throat> must have been the early 1980s, I used to love uh, going to hear Tony Benn speak. And I went to conferences just to hear him. He was the greatest orator I've experienced, and I've experienced quite a few. He was funny and cast a spell over an audience. And I just used to go to conferences to hear him. And there's something of that in Tony Blair. I, I find him utterly compelling to listen to. It's like listening to music. Um, and it is satisfying. And he's funny too. Actually, I went to a lecture given a few years ago by Tristram Hunt, now left uh, the Labour Party and uh, runs the V&A museums. But Tristram Hunt compared the two of them, Tony Benn and Tony Blair, in various ways. Now, obviously, politically miles apart. But that was the first thought I had. A lot of the conference uh, last Thursday depended on his magnetic charisma. In the same way, when I went to the Benn conferences in the early 80s, they felt slightly disconnected. You know, it was all about how the left would regain the agenda or had to regain the agenda, both within the Labour Party and then the wider country, because we will do X, Y, and Z, accountability, and blah, 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 blah. And yet it was kind of detached from a potentially clear governing project. Ironically, Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party in the early 80s and was on the left. And they could have engaged with him, but he, of course, uh, played into a narrative about betrayal. So they were sort of disconnected. And again, this doesn't apply in the same way to Tony Blair and his conference. Tony Blair is currently a big influence on Keir Starmer. And clearly the conference was designed partly to set a policy agenda for Keir Starmer. And um, it is on that level, though done very politely and thoughtfully, the most remarkable example I can think of, of backseat driving from a former leader. I mean, kind of Thatcher made barbed comments about 
major and tried to overturn Maastricht, you know, in the mid-1990s and so on. But a whole conference from a former Labour leader and Prime Minister designed to influence the current leader is quite something. And if I were the current leader, I would view it quite warily on that basis alone, because no current leader has won an election hugely influenced by a former leader. There would be the equivalent of Tony Blair turning to Harold Wilson in 1994 and Wilson holding a conference. Wilson was too ill to do so. Tony Blair was quite lucky that the Labour leaders were much older in that era and retired much older. But it would have been the equivalent of Harold Wilson saying, right, this new Labour project is all a bit vague and without values. I'm going to hold a day conference to show how you link values to policy. And then when what I did, I won four elections out of five. And then Blair turning to Wilson and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's, it, a new leader has got to look ahead on his or her terms. But there were some were some interesting things in it. But as I said, it felt kind of detached from a clear governing project. The scepticism around parties and party boundaries has one advantage. You can hold a conference with um, uh, Rory Stewart, David Gork, um, people from the Lib Dems and Labour, business people, and they all get together. But what is the kind of governing project? Where does it lie in the kind of arena of politics where parties pitch for power. There were some other things wrong with it as well as, you know, it is basically admirable that people like Blair have still got this huge appetite for British politics and playing a role in British politics and coming up with policy ideas. Why not? You know, I mean, you used to get, it's very hard. What do former prime ministers do? Um, at least this one is still totally engaged with British politics. But... It was all quite limited. I mean, the NHS stuff, for example, you know, this word technology kept on recurring as if it's a sort of, I don't know, magic wand, um, you know, an app to prevent people from getting ill. Brilliant. But you need to find the resources to get doctors. There's a GP shortage. There's a doctor shortage at hospitals. There's a nursing shortage. Where's that coming from? Where are they coming from? These thornier topics, social care, how do you pay for it? Some Northern European countries have brilliant social care. I mean, it's all very well bringing in Condoleezza Rice and, you know, various others. But some of the thorny issues of government and indeed opposition were sort of sidestepped. going to do, if it's okay with all of you, uh, most of the questions relating to this theme. And they're very varied, okay? So it's not everyone agreeing with me or uh, each other. Um, These things, you know, these podcasts, everyone talks to themselves, you know. It's not true. There's a lot of uh, variety. Anyway, let's begin with uh, Connor Jones. He says, I enjoyed your podcast last week on the centre ground and agree with you that those who claim it are often completely unable to define it. Well, I am starting, ladies and gentlemen, with a question from Connor who agrees with me, right? But not everyone does. I think Rory Stewart illustrated this brilliantly on Question Time a few weeks ago. 
Tom Harwood, a GP News Johnson loyalist, challenged Stewart, claiming that Johnson had governed as a centrist with policies like the furlough scheme. So Stewart should be happy as Johnson is exactly what he wants. I'm going to pause, Connor, just comment on that. Exactly. The Johnson government is closer to the vaguely defined centre ground than the Cameron Osborne government, not just with furlough. Uh, They've been intervening all over the place and they've put up taxes to, in theory anyway, pay for various improvements to public services. And yet we keep on hearing about this gap on the centre ground. So Stuart's response on Question Time was... The centre ground of British politics, this is apparently a quote from Rory, the centre ground of British politics is about integrity. And O'Connor says, I find this response utterly insane, as even the most radical politicians can have integrity. Now, Rory Stewart, me and many others would agree that integrity is fundamental to politics. But that's not a centre ground position. It's fundamental to democratic politics. And you can be on the left, right, and all the rest of it. Integrity is fundamental. And it looks as if the lack of it will, in the end, destroy Johnson. But as I said earlier, it's, that's related to judgment. It's not just a moral thing. A better response, in my view, this is Connor, would have been, say, the differences between pragmatism, doing whatever works regardless of ideology, and populism, doing whatever is popular regardless of ideology. Yeah, I, the, the, again, even that doesn't quite work because what Tony Blair used to say, no, I believe in what works, right? That's what politics is about. Well, actually, the essence of politics is disagreeing over what works and finding solutions through debate. And that, you know, the whole thing, Thatcherism, Thatcher said Thatcherism worked, did it? You know, Labour in the 80s, including Tony Blair, said that didn't work. Uh, Connor says, do you think it's possible to claim to be pragmatic without claiming centrism? You've got to be clear what uh, pragmatism means as well, and you need to do it in ways to excite. But he said, for example, could you claim this is Connor to be pragmatic in nationalising the railways, despite it being a left-wing idea? You certainly could. You certainly could. And the way you present radical change is to say, absolutely, this is a considered thoughtful, pragmatic, efficient solution to the challenges of our times. Uh, So anyway, Connor, thank you very much for your observations. Over now to Stuart Maester. Stuart and I used to work in a BBC in the dim and distant past together. Stuart says, and you see, I told you, you know, there's a broad church out here. He said, in my view, you, that's me, fall into the trap you accuse others of, branding whole groups of people as one thing or another. As an example, I'm incredibly socially liberal while fiscally conservative in my views. I voted Remain, but I'm in favour of reasonable immigration controls. I support the NHS, but also believe the state should be disciplined in what it does. Many hold multiple views that don't fall neatly into left, right or centre. Unlike you, I can see that Rishi Sunak, Tony Blair and Chuka Amana can be regarded as centrists. Like all political labels, centrism, if there is such a thing, has to be a broad tent. Yeah, well, the thing is this, Stuart. I kind of disagree with some of this. He says, by the Stuart also adds uh, that Brexit 
uh, is not necessarily an idea of the right. I don't think it is, Stuart, necessarily an idea of the right. It can be, there was a sort of Ben Corbyn Brexit as well. But you cannot claim Rishi Sunak, who was a Brexiteer uh, before it was kind of compulsory for Tories to pretend to be Brexiteers in all cases, is on the centre ground. That is a revolutionary idea from the left or the right. It's not centrist. And when you say, Stuart, that you are incredibly socially liberal while fiscally conservative, I kind of think that puts you where George Osborne is. Um, and economically, George Osborne is on the right, in my view. Now, I'm sure you think you're on the centre. Everyone likes to think they're on the centre. Anyway, I think these uh, labels are complicated, but very important because, say, if you put someone like Sunak on the centre ground... That means the kind of centre of gravity in British politics is very right indeed. Sunak, a Thatcherite, a Brexiteer, if he's a centrist, where does that kind of put anyone to the right of him? And, you know, anyway, you know what I mean, Stuart. We'll have to disagree. We'll agree on Stuart and I are Spurs supporters. So we are united in that uh, glorious centre ground of football. Okay, uh, Maggie Fletcher writes, this is a policy issue, not directly to do with the centre ground, but I thought we'd have a break with a policy issue because they are related, because what are the policy solutions? That was the kind of question being posed by Tony Blair's conference. I've been pondering your thoughts. This is from Maggie Fletcher. I've been pondering your thoughts about what needs to be done in order to properly finance the NHS. I'm 77. My husband is 78. Perhaps inevitably, we are increasingly heavy users of the health system. We enjoy a reasonable income thanks to work-based pensions. Why shouldn't pensioners with a comfortable uh, income continue to contribute to national insurance? I believe it's important to maintain a service free at the point of contact. But I would like to find an effective means also of fining people who miss appointments. Yeah, I agree uh, with all of that, Maggie. The problem, of course... And by the way, generational inequality is a, is just a massive issue. I suspect no party will propose anything that takes a halfpenny away from pensioners before an election because pensioners vote. Now, whether you could find a form of words that allows you the space, if you win, to then do something wholly fair and affordable for certainly most pensioners, uh, for them to contribute more to the NHS through national insurance, yeah, do it. Do it. I think it's an absolutely sensible policy, which could be. See, everyone defines themselves. You know, you could claim that is absolutely on the centre ground. Owen Jarvis writes, "I was. I have always been impressed by Blair's communication skills, including last week. He still makes compelling viewing and listening." Um, other than Iraq and policies on migration levels from Eastern Europe, the area Blair is said to have lost many of the electorate is in his vehement advocacy for the UK's population of all ages to keep up with unrelenting innovation and technology, which can come across as lacking compassion and connection with ordinary lives. Do you agree? And how does Labour champion the tech revolution? P.S. My mother usually listens to the show whilst doing her gardening. If anything shocking comes up, I do fear she'll cut off a flower by accident. Oh, my God. Oh, well, there's a, you know, if we shock your mum, a flower is in danger. I think, yeah, forget about Ukraine. I'm worried about this flower. But anyway, this is the easy bit, frankly. 
Labour leaders of the opposition often use technology. I mean, Tony Blair has this knack of making it all sound new and fresh. Harold Wilson, in 1964, we will harness the white heat of the technological revolution, etc. It's been done many times before. But there are areas where uh, governments can make technological change the servant of the people rather than the master. And that's the way of framing it. And that's one of the easier things for Labour to get a grip with uh, when it claims to seize the future. But people are angry and worked up and frightened. And there is a sense of turmoil in the UK. And you can't just say, oh, yeah, I'm on this centre ground, you know, aren't we fantastic? It's got to be bigger. And I hope your mum's gardening goes well. Uh, Susan Brown writes, each week I look forward to your podcast. However, today I'm not jogging, baking bread or knitting, but instead I'm isolating from the world with COVID. I hope you feel better soon, Susan. Everyone seems to have it at the moment. It's, you know, in Liberty Britain, we're all free to get COVID and we're all getting it. Susan said, your last podcast caught my attention as I've been thinking a lot about the question, what does Labour actually stand for? and its need to adopt the so-called centre ground if it's to be electable. Do you think that the true centre ground is a kind of mixed economy, similar to that adopted by Anaira and Bevan? Bevan believed in a society where socialism and capitalism work side by side. Yeah, Susan gives a few examples of this, and she wonders whether there are equivalent big ideas now. Uh, big plan could aim to reindustrialize the so-called red wall areas in the Midlands and the North and supplant what appears to be a cosmetic service-led Tory levelling up agenda. Labour could promise a big national social house building programme and to bring in a law that would present, prevent those new council houses being sold off. The concept of supply and demand would hopefully then bring current house prices down. They may seem simplistic policies, but surely this is the kind of centre ground the Labour Party should be aiming for, uh, and one that voters will easily understand. It also fits with the zeitgeist of the times when public services are crumbling, the railways are in disarray, the cost of living crisis is worsening. Yeah, what is the zeitgeist at any given time? The art of politics is to read it and seize it. And that's it is, again, the public realm not working. It's much more than that when you've got inflation and the private sector also struggling. It kind of demands some big thinking, big ideas. Um, and it is interesting, you know, there's no point, I don't think there's much point in referring back in public speeches to 1945. You know, I remember uh, watching Michael Foote, who was also a great orator in 1983, a lot of his speech was about the 45 government and I, Bevan, and what he did to the NHS, etc. And this is what the Labour government will do now. And most people just, you know, just seemed all too long ago. But I'm reading a lot about that government at the moment for a book I'm writing. I think I mentioned it last week. There are, in some ways, similarities limited with the challenges that 45 government faced and the zeitgeist that helped them face them and make radical policy decisions. Quite a lot of preparation had already gone on before and paths been cleared for them to act radically. And it's the same now. You know, it's, it's Boris Johnson who's put a tax up, national insurance, to give him more space to 
spend on public spending. It's Theresa May and Nick Timothy who argued for interventions in markets that weren't working and for an industrial strategy. And so there are already elements in place. It's this government that claimed, although it's backing away as it does with everything, to aim high in terms of house building. So you've got all these kind of things uh, where the ground has been cleared, as had been the case in 1945. And then you say, right, OK, we're on this agenda, This, but we believe in it. This is the new centre ground. Um, but it's much wider than the themes explored by uh, Tony Blair last week. Thank you very much. I hope you feel better. Uh, now on to Sarah Murphy. I'm sure many of you follow Sarah on Twitter. Uh, her brilliant tweets around the clock on the madness we're all living through, particularly on Brexit and Boris Johnson. Anyway, Sarah's theory about the centre ground. Voters are tired of it all. They're tired of the hostility, but also reluctant to take Brexit's problems on. They want politics to calm down. So we get commentators like Matthew Paris, I mentioned him last week, homing in on politicians like Sunak Javid Gove, because compared to some of the absolute frothing zealots in the Tory party, they seem calm and reasonable. But as you say, they're not centrists. Equally, Starmer talks in cautious tones about national renewal and tries to pitch his ideas through a prism of non-contentious measured patriotism. The elephant in the room remains Brexit and the damage it's done materially, socially and politically. It sits firmly in the space where reasonable politics used to be and politicians skirt around it or just lie to all of us about the benefits. Sunak has wanted Brexit since he was a teenager. Exactly. Stuart Maester, Sarah points out, he was a Brexiteer as a teenager. That is not the centre ground, Stuart. He's a total dogmatist about it. He is Chancellor and absolutely refuses to heed the financial analysis that has been done on Brexit because he wants it more than he cares about the damage it does. That's extremism. Goes in the same camp. Leveling up is made significantly harder when you've trashed your economy, your inward investment and your tax receipts. They might not come across as English nationalists, but their flagship policy is an English nationalist policy. It is very interesting. And, and she adds on the Tory party, the party is something very different now. The only way this country can return to civil, sane and responsible politics, which I think means the centre ground, is with this particular version of the Conservative Party out of power for years, forced to reassess and understand why they failed themselves in the country. What's interesting is that uh, given that England, anyway, tends to elect Tory governments, it's massively in the interests of England for that one nation conservatism, internationalist, heeding the law, small c conservative, you know, the kind of Macmillan, Rab Butler, Douglas Home, Ted Heath uh, kind of uh, party, Lord Carrington, that kind of party. The Tory party's become a kind of revolutionary party of uh, constant change and chaos reasserts itself. And then it will be quite interesting to see whether... Labour can be more bold in its definition of consensus or the centre ground. So, yeah, I do think, Sarah, it is absolutely fundamental. And it is interesting in a way that the centre ground for quite a lot of people just means people who seem reasonably polite. You know, in the Tory party, Sunak's perfectly polite as an interviewee. So is Gove, famously, in his rehearsed kind of 
mannered way. That party needs to change. And that's why I used to call Michael Heseltine the modernizer in the Tory party. He was one that could have moved them on from Thatcherism. And Cameron and Osborne claimed to be, but they weren't. There are others. You could see, as I say, that the Nick Timothy agenda was flawed but interesting. Uh, and certainly economically, he was an interventionist. He was a bit of a nationalist, a curious mix of Ed Miliband and Enoch Powell. But you could see Theresa May kind of in a very erratic way, trying to, declaring that austerity was over and all the rest. It's all haphazard. It hasn't been thought through. But they need to become a one-nation party again. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, see you on Twitter now, to, immediately. Michael Forte uh, says, oh, great podcast. Thank you, Michael. I listened to it this week on the ferry from Marseille's old port to Point Rouge in the south of the city. And he sent me a photo for me to just feel miserable and jealous of a beautiful blue sky and all the rest of it. He says, I think you got the wrong end of the stick with Matthew Paris. I'm sure he didn't mean in that Times piece that Rishi Sunak and the others were centrists in the overall political spectrum. I think he meant they were centrists in today's Tory party, i.e. they're not ERG headbangers like Rees Mogg or Redwood, but they're not one nation wets like Damien Green. Damien Green's been pretty wet at the moment. He sort of said Johnson should go, but it's up to the cabinet kind of thing. Well, he might have done. He might have done, Michael, but it doesn't matter. This term is so ubiquitous, centrist, um, that it, it becomes meaningless and it's never clear whether they just mean oh the center of the party but even that is revealing because Sunak is not from that sort of Rab Butler Harold Macmillan kind of tradition so he's a Thatcherite now as Sarah points out he's he's polite but is that centrism in the Tory party so I think this term uh you know a big leader needs to grab it to be radical as Will Hutton was saying in that thing I quoted Nick Jones says, you made the point that politicians in the centre couldn't agree on an economic policy. That's probably correct, but neither can politicians on the left or the right. If you lock Rory Stewart or David Gork in a room with Rachel Reeves and told them to agree on economic policy, they would struggle. But I don't think they would struggle more than if they were with John Redwood or Jeremy Corbyn, respectively. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. But here is the twist, Nick. These parties are meant to be broad churches. So Rory Stewart, David Gork, I mean, they're sort of kind of one nation Tories, I suppose, maybe uh, Rory a bit more radical than that, I don't know. So they should be able to get along in the end with the kind of John Redwoods of this world. As I've said already, I hope Stewart and Gork would prevail in such a party rather than being kicked out. But the moment you sort of say, oh, yeah, there's the centre ground for Rory Stewart, David Gould, Rachel Reeves and others, everything becomes technocratic because it's not clear what is binding these people. But, yeah, they're, they're a big, huge kind of range within a party as well as uh, between them. I kind of agree with that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Laundry Joe Wright, so-called for new listeners, because he listens to the podcast while doing his laundry. I appreciate there's a real risk that public administrations start serving themselves rather than the public. He was He's talking about, you know, how you get this mix of a well-funded, stable, fair and resilient institutions with clear lines of accountability delivering public services. This is the challenge. 
which uh, you know has has not been addressed by any of the parties or the self-proclaimed centrists. And he says, you can see in local education authorities who presided over poor results, for example, or health trusts or the Metropolitan Police who become defensive and scared of scrutiny. My question is, how can we have stable, well-funded institutions which don't serve themselves without resorting to the privatisation of the public services, which is rarely a panacea? That is, to me, the key question. Uh, in, in in British politics, um, because no one should fall into the trap of assuming everything's perfect in these public services. They are emphatically not. And I worked in one in the BBC where I sh- saw so much waste, I almost had to leave on those grounds alone and lack of accountability um, as well. And so I think these fractured public services are inefficient They were described as reform and efficient and saving taxpayers' money. They've cost us a fortune. And we need modern public services delivered efficiently with clear lines of accountability, every halfpenny accounted for. I mean, the best I can think of, of kind of as a model, unexplored, I think, at the Centrists Conference, the Tony Blair Centrist Conference, was what happened in London with the mayor, which was a great innovation for London. Uh, Labour government, new Labour government innovation. And Ken Livingstone got elected against the opposition of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It's the only time, by the way, Keir Starmer, please note, uh, where they went for an individual on the left. They tried to stop Ken Livingstone being the Labour candidate and Tony Blair had to subsequently apologise because Livingstone at that point was a success. And what he did with transport was uh, a model I think others should follow. He just recognised that with so little infrastructure being built in the UK over years and public services being in disarray, he would go and get the best from around the world to revive uh, public transport in London. So he got the guys who had revived the uh, metro in New York to come over and sort it out. And he put up... Uh, a taxes, but only through a directly earmarked tax, the congestion charge, to pay for improvements in public services. And he, Livingstone, was accountable. If it didn't work, he was out. But it did. And I think it's a good model. Andy Burnham's trying to do it. He hasn't got as much power in Manchester and so on. Uh, But I think it could be applied to a whole range of different things. Uh, For example, on social care, if there's a new government after the election... I would bring in the best, look for the best one, best publicly funded social care system, probably in Northern Europe. I'm told, you know, stuff like Norway is brilliant. What did they do? How much did it cost? Get them over here, sort it out, and then try and do what all these governments, and Johnson in particular, have promised to do but won't. The next one's from John Bennett in Gennington. It's a, it's a long one, so um, I'm only going to read a bit of it, John. Reflecting on your piece about the centre ground, I'm reminded of the theory that every 40 years or so there's radical upheaval in British politics. 1832, 1868, 1906, 1945, 1979. I'm wondering whether 2016 to 2019 was the latest such shift or whether 2024 might mark a more real departure. The case for 2016 is obvious, a break with Europe after 40 years, Johnsonism, whatever that is. However, as you often hint, a Labour or Lib Lab government, 
could fashion a more fundamental modernising Britain. And here's the list of some of the things which uh, John thinks might meet that definition. Constitutional change, PR Lord's reform, serious devolution, rejection of market fundamentalism in favour of regulatory and collaborative approach to industry, Uh, quality public services paid for at least in part by higher growth and a fairer tax system, standards in public life improved by better safeguards against corruption and misconduct, public housing programmes, social reform, justice system removing private schools' privileges, combining health and social care, better relations with Europe, strong position on defence of the West vis-à-vis Russia, China. Yeah, well, you are kind of outlining, uh, I think, bits of the Labour pitch in 2024. Not all of it, but some of it. I still ask John, as I read them out, how? 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 But I think you've outlined an agenda which could bring about real change. Um, although, um, the, the, you know, let me give you one example as we're all still here, hopefully. Rejection of market fundamentalism in favour of regulatory and collaborative approach to industry. Now, I know what you mean, but how do you say regulate the energy sector as currently uh, structured? in a way that works, you know? I mean, I don't think the issue is regulation, to be honest. I think there's no forward planning. You know, they're all gambling on gas prices. If they get it wrong, the government has to step in, as we're seeing at the moment, and so on. But anyway, yeah, um, turning points. We're in a turning point. You know, to go back to Rishi Sunak, here's a fiscal conservative having to be Keynesian, in a way, um, and it's events propelling him in that direction. And that's why it is interesting, you know, when people complain about this government betraying the centrists, that it is it has moved to the left because of events, really. Philip Gilfus was watching the uh, Blair conference last week, even using the subject, main subject matter of the conference, technology, looking for a middle way, etc. I think we still could have heard, and by the way, uh, Philip's an admirer in, uh, in many respects of Blair. I still think we could have heard from food bank directors, social care administrators, teachers from schools outside London about how they are using new or innovative methods of moving the UK forward. Instead, we heard from Silicon Valley CEOs or former speechwriters turned head teachers. I don't think they were relatable at all outside of an elite opinion. Uh, And as someone with three degrees and working on the fourth, I'm probably included. Blimey, four degrees should have been speaking at this conference. He thought it was too English and American. Uh, Condi Rice, Larry Summers, yeah, members of the Problem Solvers Caucus. If you ever want to make an American progressive start gagging, just name these people. The range could have been wider. It's difficult in a day. I mean, a day is a kind of, you know, it's no time at all. Um, yeah, this, uh, thank you, Philip. And Anthony Richardson was the one who says that the technique to grab the centre is to say always at the beginning of a sentence, speaking as a centrist. So uh, he gives one example. Speaking as a centrist, bringing the railways back into public ownership is obviously the only solution. A new, modern, coordinated railway system efficiently delivered and valued Um, instead of the chaotic fracturing one where no one's in charge at any time, let alone when strikes are causing chaos. Uh, Yeah, speaking as a centrist. James Buckley uh, has a different theory. James, by the way, he's, he's, he's the one in Portugal, always in the sunshine and, you know, making things with olives in it. 
Surely it's rather about Labour taking general principles from the 90s, not policy specifics, and flexibly, pragmatically applying them to the 2020s. It's about looking at where voters are now across the UK and finding a message that a big enough chunk of them can unite around. That's the big tent. The alternative is stick with an ideology regardless of whether it appeals to a sufficient number of voters in the here and now as Jeremy Corbyn tested out. Well, James, the thing is, though, you know, this thing of an ideology, ideas are the essence of politics. Now, you have to claim them, as I say, and forge a consensus around ideas and the policies that arise from them. But I don't believe, as Tony Blair does, that we're in this post-ideological era. He's a very odd mix of self-deprecation and sweeping kind of grandeur because he might feel post-ideological. It doesn't mean the entire world is. There is a huge debate and has been since 2010. Do you uh, reduce the size of the state or stimulate the economy by spending more? That is an ideological debate. Anyway, uh, but thank you, James, for framing it and stimulating an argument further. Now, I'm going to go to Nate from North London, slightly different, but very interesting. You flagged before the parallels between now and the first 1974 election. These parallels seem stronger now with the strikes going on. Yeah, by the way, as Nate reminds me, if you subscribe to Patreon, uh, you get a whole load of bonus podcasts on general elections, including the cinematic, weird February 1974 election. I appreciate your thoughts on how the debate about the links between inflation and public sector pay have played out in the past and what it teaches us. Tricky but potentially fertile territory for all the main parties. Uh, yeah, that, that's it is really interesting. Sometimes you are surprised by what happens. So, for example, in the February 74 election, called by Ted Heath, posing the question, who governs Britain amidst the um, chaos caused by the miners' strikes? It was surprising, and Heath was thrown, that actually support for the striking miners was quite strong, even though there had been three-day weeks, power cuts, and so on. So it's very hard to always predict. After another five years of strikes, uh, the Labour government was kicked out. It tends to be the government that gets the blame. So the Tories were kicked out in '74 amidst industrial chaos, Labour in 79. And then Thatcher came in and planned very carefully the miners' strike in the mid-80s, as in she was determined to beat them. And so she kind of made sure she only challenged them when coal stocks were very high, uh, when the Labour Party was split over the issue. And in the end, she prevailed and sort of compared it to the Falklands in its significance. And it was actually, in some ways, much more significant as a defining issue for Britain in the 1980s, that miners' strike. And she used to refer, do you remember, to the enemy within, and she meant the miners. But she was, uh, yeah, she was quite, well, she won an election uh, in 1987 after the miners' strike, another landslide. So, It partly depends how well prepared the government is. I get the impression nothing is well prepared in this Johnson administration. So there's going to be chaos. And I suspect they will get the blame. It's not certain. Labour have been unclear of message and strategy over it. But it tends to be governments that get the blame. 
Okay, thank you, uh, Nate, and uh, good to hear from you. And finally, yeah, a bit of a sort of contrast here just to end with. It's from Paul Hughes. Um, I really enjoy your podcast, especially listening while walking along Crosby Beach. What a romantic image, Paul. I was interested in Theresa May's question in the House this week on the back of her other uh, embarrassing questions to Boris Johnson and Priti Patel earlier this year. Am I right in thinking that it was Edward Heath who was the last Prime Minister that served as a backbencher? And are there other famous embarrassing moments and put-downs from former Prime Ministers? Um, well, he he was the most kind of persistent. Uh, he stayed on the backbenches looking furious throughout the whole Thatcher uh, period, uh, or most of it, and um, famously intervened uh, with barely suppressed anger uh, in the House of Commons. I can still see him now. I can remember where he sat on uh, the sort of gangway seat looking apoplectic. Um, Thatcher herself, of course, stayed on for a bit and gave uh, kind of basically organised some of the rebels against John Major and the Maastricht Treaty, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it's only become fashionable recently. Jim Callahan stayed for a long time, gave Michael Foote a bit of trouble. It's only recently that prime ministers have left almost immediately. Tony Blair, uh, David Cameron, uh, Gordon Brown stayed on for a bit longer, but was rarely seen in the House of Commons. Theresa May is in that Ted Heath mould. Absolutely. Uh, she enjoys the Commons, clearly. And she's making a fortune, ironically, on public speaking on the public speaking circuit. Um, you know, people had to be paid to hear Theresa May when she was a prime minister, but now make your fortune. But she is also, to her credit, committed to the House of Commons and I think has the capacity to cause quite a lot of trouble because she is authoritative and obviously decent for all her epic flaws as a leader, and they were many. She has a kind of integrity, to use that word which Rory Stewart claims for centrists, that and, and Theresa May isn't a centrist that Johnson so obviously lacks. So there she is sitting there. Former prime ministers should stay on, I think, uh, because they add for all their kind of epic flaw flaws. She's not the only epically flawed one. They add a kind of weightiness and so on. And funnily enough, I think you know Blair would have hated it in the House of Commons uh, post prime ministership. But when you're in there. You have more significance, I think. I don't think, I think, uh, George Osborne made a mistake leaving as an MP, uh, someone wholly hooked on politics, but only doing it now as a sort of commentator on the sidelines. I mean, they all earn a fortune and it's more difficult to earn a fortune if you're in the House of Commons because you have to declare everything and it just, you know, the vast sums become embarrassing. But anyway, yeah, she's worth watching. You know, uh, the people around to like G Gavin Barwell and David Liddington have become very intelligent, perceptive critics of this Johnson regime, which is looking fragile. Anyway, I think it's going to be a week of this again, of fr his fragility, the fragility of the administration being a theme with old, uh, uh, the whole kind of Chris Pincher thing. We're back where we began today. But yeah, I've been going on for a long time. So thank you. Brilliant questions. Thank you all those who wrote in about other things. But I just thought as I was kind of bombarded uh, with reflections on this theme of where is the centre ground? What does it mean if, if it means anything at all? I would kind of focus more on those questions this week, but there's plenty of time. 
I mean, we're all going to be gathering next week, I hope. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for listening this week. Wherever you are, have a great week. And oh yeah, if you like, only if you like it, do leave a review because more people can get to join our kind of working cooperative um, that way. And um, yeah, see you all next week. And I say, those of you on Patreon, you'll get the bonus podcast coming up. Harold Wilson, Marcia Williams. So interesting. So interesting. Anyway, that'll be coming this week as well. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good time. Bye. Bye.